Hey there, my name's Mark McCartney and welcome to the What is a Good Life podcast. Over the last two years, I've interviewed over 150 people around this question, not to provide you with the universal answer, but to help you find and define your own answer to this question. On the 35th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Marina Cantacasino. Marina is an award-winning journalist, author, and founder of The Forgiveness Project, a charity that collects and shares real stories of forgiveness for people to consider, examine, and choose forgiveness in the face of atrocity. In this episode, we explore the role of forgiveness in transforming pain, the appropriateness of forgiving or not forgiving in different circumstances, what allows us to forgive, and the role that curiosity often plays in forgiving others. Marina also shares numerous inspiring stories of forgiveness from her wonderful project that has spawned a book, Forgiveness and Exploration, a BBC radio series, and exhibitions throughout the world. This episode will give you plenty to contemplate regarding the idea of forgiveness that you may not have considered before. It will also reveal the complexity and the ambiguity of the topic, and indeed of life itself. Finally, if you're anything like me, it will make you reflect on your own relationships presently, and perhaps serve as an impetus to reach out to people you want to be more at peace with in your life. I found this conversation with Marina to be stunningly insightful. It's rare in a conversation where I'm I'm recalibrating my own thought process towards a topic so frequently as the conversation itself is unfolding. So I'm sure you're going to take a lot from this conversation. And if you enjoy this episode, please like, share and subscribe. And if you're on the podcasting platforms, please leave a review as I'd greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 35th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. Marina, thank you so much for joining me on the What is a Good Life uh, podcast today. As we've chatted before, I told you how much I I enjoy and appreciate the sentiment of your forgiveness project. Uh, So I was very much looking forward to having a conversation with you here today. Well, it's it's great to talk to you, Mark. I'm I'm just interested to know where this conversation takes us. (laughs) Well, well, that makes two of us. So as I tend to start the, the conversation with, it's with the question of, is there a question you're trying to answer as you move through life? Definitely, I think the question I've been asking as I've moved through the past 20 years of my life is something around how can we best deal with our psychological pain without doing further damage to ourselves and others. Um, So that grows definitely out of my work with the Forgiveness Project and looking at forgiveness as a tool for recovery, I guess. There's a... There's something in the idea of genuine forgiveness that I feel is kind of like gloriously connecting and healing. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about genuine because I've I've had a book out recently and I have a chapter dedicated to the dark side of forgiveness. Um, I think there are people who see forgiveness as this panacea for all ills. and it's not, I'm very clear about framing it as a choice, as something deeply personal, as not always appropriate, as complicated, as open to interpretation. I mean, I think that's the thing I've learned the most over the last 20 years, that everybody's got their own definition. Um, and everybody's got very strong feelings about it. They either are affronted or inspired, basically. Um, and there's so much to say. It's very contested territory. It's very contentious. And it's, I mean, one of the things I learned early on, actually, was that it almost, 
there's a sort of binary way of looking at forgiveness. There are two camps, if you like. There are the unconditionals and the conditionals. So those who are who believe in conditional forgiveness uh, believe that it has to be deserved through confession and contrition, if you like. So it's an exchange, something that you get in exchange for apology, remorse or whatever, and it has to be earned and deserved. But then there's the other side. And it, you know, very often it leads to contentious, difficult conversations. There are the people who say forgiveness has absolutely nothing to do with the person who's hurt you. It's entirely an act of self-healing. It's about letting go and acceptance. It's about finding somehow some empathy and compassion for the person who's hurt you. And that it's, um, if you wait for someone to apologize, if you wait for someone to take responsibility and change, you know, you're, you may well be waiting forever and you're still therefore inextricably linked to them and you will never be free. So it's this idea of forgiveness as an act of, of um, self-preservation, of freeing you from the shackles of pain. Um, so I find it really interesting. And there's no right or wrong, of course. People just have different positions. When you said earlier uh, the kind of appropriateness of uh, forgiveness in a in a situation, and and maybe even I was kind of oversimplifying the idea of it being connecting and, and, and in healing in a way, but can you kind of describe any kind of scenarios and where you're kind of seeing, I don't know, where you kind of use the word where appropriateness may come into the equation, if you get me? Yeah. Well, I can tell you what others have said. I mean, well, there's some interesting research, for instance, around domestic violence. And it's sort of like, like a lot of research. It makes complete sense, you know. It's very logical. Those who keep on forgiving someone who's being abusive to them will get more abuse. Those who don't forgive and to take some kind of action around it are going to get less abuse in the future. There's also this whole idea of whether forgiveness can actually create more harm Ta-Nehisi Coates, I don't know if you know his work, he's an African-American um, and he's written a fantastic book called Between the World and Me um, about growing up in America as a black person. And it was a book written to his son, actually. And he talks in the book about a school friend of his who was killed in, um, he was completely innocent and it was, it was killed by a policeman. And how he talks about how, the, how his community um, started forgiving very early. And he, was, he says, I, I, I do not believe in forgiveness, he says. And what he was really saying was that his, his friend was not killed by a single policeman. His friend was killed by a society and a country. And all the fears that have moulded that country since birth. And therefore, to talk of forgiveness exonerates and um, condones and excuses, you know, evil. And that, therefore, forgiveness is actually very dangerous, is basically what he's saying. So, I, feel, I mean, I find that very interesting. There were very similar debates after, um, in Charleston, 
a black congregation were fired on by a young white supremacist. Very, I remember this very clearly. Very soon after, it hit headlines around the world. Some of the families of those black people who had been killed were talking about forgiveness. And then a very interesting debate. Um, there was a very interesting debate on social media about whether black forgiveness condones white violence. You know, and it was put in these very racial terms. And I just, it wasn't something I particularly thought about before, um, about how actually promoting forgiveness in this way could be hurtful to some people and even possibly dangerous. There's also uh, just the third and last example I'd give um, is a woman who was a victim of rape who actually very much understood the psychological benefits and the freeing nature of being able to forgive and move on and let go. And, and I felt would have been up for it in a sense for her own self-healing. But she says, I will not speak of forgiveness because to do so would be to seem as if I was condoning all rapists. And therefore my solid, I, I speak in solidarity with other people who have been harmed in that way. And and um, I will not forgive. Um, so she took it onto a political sphere almost. Um, so there were, you know, there are many times when forgiveness might not be appropriate. And also I think it's really important to think it's not a binary thing of forgiveness and revenge or forgiveness and violence and hatred. Yeah. What is unforgiveness? I was at a conference in, um, Harvard recently in America, where there were a lot of academics who presenting their papers about research into forgiveness, and they've done all sorts of interesting trials in countries in Africa and East Asia and, um, and in South America. And it was fascinating, but they kept talking about unforgiveness, and they never ever specified or explained what they meant by unforgiveness. But what they were really talking about was the polar opposite of forgiveness. What they were really talking about is um, hatred, resentment, bitterness. But actually maybe unforgiveness is relinquishing to a higher power. Maybe it's forbearing, maybe it's accepting and moving on. Maybe it's okay to say, do not forgive, but I accept what's happened to me. Um, you know, bad stuff happens. Life is morally complicated. Good people do bad things. Bad things happen to good people. I, a sort of profound acceptance, peace, and reconciling with the wound, if you like, but not necessarily forgiveness, because I think people are very quite lazy with the term as well. What, yeah. you know, everyone's got a definition. You've probably got one. Yeah, it's, um, there's something really almost like, it, it, there's something almost really kind of beautiful in the, the, the idea of considering movement along a spectrum, even if, say, if we coin it as unforgiveness and forgiveness, and then the, the spectrum even as well of that, like of potentially moving on and not letting it uh, not, like coming to peace with the act itself but not with the what yeah. the person did there's something really i don't know it seems like such a human dilemma or a 
paradox within it. Or, or, do you know what I mean? Like it seems really, I don't, I, it's not in the cases that you're talking about there, you know, like even rape, racial, um, racial mm. murder, these, these kind of mm. uh, things like Extremes. this. But Yeah. Um, but there's almost kind of some sort of, I don't know, delicious kind of paradox to it. Or you know, do you get what I'm trying to say? Like there's mm. like, there's something in it where it's I like, do. the hell or com- complexity of the human experience where you're just like, what the hell would you do? Or what would be mm. the, you know, you mentioned the word appropriate. What would the appropriate thing be in yeah. this circumstance? Yeah. yeah. You said paradox there, which reminds me of one of my favourite descriptions or definitions of forgiveness is by the poet philosopher David White. He describes forgiveness as a heartache, difficult to achieve because he says it strangely refuses to eliminate the original wound, but actually draws us closer to its source. And he says... um, that to approach forgiveness is to close in on the hurt itself. And the only remedy being to, you know, as you approach the raw center is to transform your relationship to it. So I found that was, you know, spot on when I read that, because it's not about eliminating something. It's about transforming something and and having a different relationship to the pain. So the thing I realized early on, because, you know, the forgiveness project, um, which was the organization I started 20 years ago, collects stories about forgiveness, essentially. It's a platform for stories that heal, restore, and rehumanize, and a community of storytellers who want to use their stories to create a more compassionate world. And when I started collecting these stories and realizing, you know, what a, that everybody's definition was different, everyone's experience was different, everyone's limits of forgiveness and poss- possibilities for forgiveness was different, um, that pain was, in fact, the greatest motivator to forgive. And it made me think of it as just another strategy to deal with pain. Because if you think about it, if we're in deep pain, we can we can go into silence and denial. We can self-harm. We can take revenge. But we can also use forgiveness as a way of, of getting through and turning the page, if you like. And that was what really got me onto the subject you know you've kind of got me twisting and turning here in my mind around the idea yeah like it's 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 fascinating because i've had experiences in my own life where um i feel like there was a genuine sense of forgiveness i also have plenty of experiences in my life where i've probably uttered the words i i forgive you and then i've rehashed things and brought it up again and it was nothing there was no forgiveness in the room at any point <laughs> only the the word itself yes and but even this this sense here of you know a i i always wonder sometimes when i hear of sometimes people um going back in their their time and through their timeline or kind of pathologically analyzing why maybe they are like they are and maybe there's a a, an experience with parents maybe there's an experience mm. with a former partner or a friend or some betrayal or or some trauma and I always kind of I'm kind of torn I, I love the idea of being able to meet with that person again like whoever it may be and and actually seeing them as a human maybe suspending our judgment and and approaching why did they do that maybe with some curiosity mm. 
But then I also think that's quite, it can be quite disempowering. Like what if they passed? <laughs> you know, if I need the other person to be part of this process of my forgiveness, it, it's it's more it's more complicated than what I what I was kind of making it out to be. I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, what you're talking about first, when you say past, did you mean died? What if they're not there or yeah, not willing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they could just not be willing as well, or it, they it, could exactly, be unable, yeah. just unable to go there with you for whatever reason. I think that's right. I mean, I do think that if you had someone in front of you and you're able to um, have some sort of restorative dialogue with them and an understanding and curiosity, I agree, it's absolutely key. I think that makes everything easier because there is nothing more disarming than genuine apology, remorse. If, if you have been very hurt, and of course it's much easier if it's a very simple situation where it's very clear one person's been hurt and the other person has done the hurt. And if you've got that situation and the person is, is, is very remorseful, you see them squirming, they feel humiliated maybe, they're, they're apologising, they're explaining, then all the slider switches for forgiveness come on. Where it becomes yeah. much more problematic is that both people, you and your friend say, both feel equally justified in how you behaved and see it very differently. Then how do you find common ground? And is forgiveness actually, well, no, forgiveness can come a bit incendiary then. It become an act of aggression, certainly an accusation. I, if I say I forgive you and you feel you've done absolutely nothing wrong, I don't think <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. going to, um, it's not going to help the situation, is it? it it's amazing how... Uh certain expressions and this goes through like a wide variety of experiences in life can be we can try to to uh, uh, like get to the higher ground almost and bestow a forgiveness down to somebody and it can be loaded with uh <laughs> it can be loaded with spite <laughs> it can as can the word sorry can be very insincere and lip service can't it yeah. um yeah i think with forgiveness also what i find what i found you know sort of fascinating about it and really has kept me going with the subject firstly is that i keep on learning more and more and more the more i kind of look into it the less i understand in some level and so it's a sort of bottomless pit of inquiry and that indeed is what the forgiveness project is it's a place of inquiry not you know propagation it's not about yeah. persuading anyone to forgive at all it's about looking at these processes what are they what are the key ingredients when does it help when doesn't it help um and how do people do it actually because there are a lot of books written about forgiveness a lot of studies a lot of money is put into research because it's very clear that it's good for your health, mental and physical. Um, but I think stories are the way in, for me, into the subject. Stories stick, facts fade. Um, lived experience is what lingers and stays with people and I think is helpful to others who want to look at, explore, learn about the subject. What was the, the point for you, uh, Marina, where you, you became really intrigued with this as a, as a topic and to have 
you know, for that, as you say, this bottomless pit of inquiry and curiosity that, that has maintained it for, yeah. for this amount of time. Yeah. Well, I, when I founded the charity, which is a UK-based charity, I was a journalist um, and I never planned it. It was never anything I planned to do. What You asked what started it and it was very clearly the Iraq war for me. I went on that march, um, peace march in London. I felt completely frustrated and very angry that politicians weren't listening. And and then I started thinking, what you know, what can I do? I had a small voice as a journalist, and I had a friend who was a photographer. We were doing a lot of traveling at the time for our work. And I said to him, when we're doing this traveling, why don't we seek out stories which shows that taking revenge and retaliation isn't always the right course or the appropriate course or the best course after you've been hurt or after an act of violence or abuse. And that's what we did over the course of a year. We found individual narratives from you know Northern Ireland, Israel, America, Germany, um, UK, Northern Ireland, Palestine. Um, and we made those, and they were for victims, survivors, who had found peaceful solutions to harm. And they were from perpetrators and former offenders who had transformed their aggression into a force for peace. Sometimes those stories had the two people together, like restorative justice, you know, a victim and an offender. Their stories, which was one story, um, and that became an exhibition because I was a journalist, very sort of strong portraits, first-person narratives. I thought it would be a one-off. You know, it was it was in London on the South Bank. And, but it was just phenomenal. This was 2004 now, so I'd spent a year doing that. I thought I'd go back to journalism, but it was just phenomenally successful. It seemed to tap into this real public need um, to find hope in very bleak places and to look at restorative justice, look at forgiveness, look at ways of um, transforming pain. It was quite political. The stories were quite extreme because as a journalist, I knew that grab people's attentions, the people's attention, it was the extreme stories that usually did it. Um, and my life just went off in a different direction after that. People said, you must start, do more with this. And I worked with some of the storytellers and we started working in prisons and schools and collecting more stories. The exhibition has since that day been seen by about 90,000 people in person, you know, in 15 different countries around the world. Um, and it grows and it evolves. As It's a very small charity, but has a far reach, I think. And um, it's also a very good resource for any sort of anyone interested in forgiveness or academics use it a lot as well. Just the, I love this idea of kind of hope in bleak times. Mm. Like it's, because yeah. uh, it, to me, forgiveness sounds like there is a, there is a movement happening. Like there is a, and I don't mean as in a, in a social movement, but I just mean yeah. that there is something becomes somewhat unstuck and it's just even seeing the movement gives us hope from going from one place to wherever the other place may be. Yeah, I think that's right. Something becomes unstuck and you, 
um, you turn a page in a way, you leave something behind, but it's not gone. And you reconfigure your life in a meaningful and often very creative way. And I think some of the stories I've collected have been so extreme that people have thought, how on earth could you forgive that monster, that evil, evil person, that serial killer, whatever it is, that terrorist? And it's very interesting to see how those people frame forgiveness because it's not about condoning or excusing, but at some level, it is about understanding. And that understanding is, if I had been born into your skin, if I had had your life, if I'd had your influences, if my brain had been wired in the way your brain was wired, could I possibly have done what you did? It's asking that question, it's the curiosity again without consigning that person to the scrap heap of history, to consigning that person to um, the label of evil or monster. You know, so that's how those people do it. They also, there's a woman called Fegan Murray, um, who's very interesting. Her son, her, her very, very precious adult son, he was killed along with a lot of children in the Manchester Reader bombings. Um, when the Islamic terrorist suicide bombings. She's always said that up until that time, she had thought of forgiveness as a very lame concept. In fact, she'd never thought about it, and she was not a religious person. And for the first two weeks of shock and horror after what had happened, it certainly didn't enter her mind. And then one day there was another terrorist attack in London where a man had been killed, um, and... Uh, a someone had attacked a mosque and the imam and his group had surrounded the attacker to prevent that man from being hurt and she was so moved by this act of compassion by the imam and his group you know protecting someone who was trying to kill them essentially that it just something in her brain switched like that and she felt this, she describes it in very physical terms, she felt this extraordinary sense of release and relief. Um, and she realised that she had to pursue a path of forgiveness because that was the only way, she puts it, I could stay within my humanity. Wow. So I, she was not going to exacerbate the hatred and vile and discrimination that had come through the suicide bomber. She was going to occupy a totally different space of love, peace and forgiveness. And it served her very, very well. Interestingly, not everybody likes it. Even though she's yeah. the mother, a grieving mother, and surely should have the right to grieve exactly as she wants. Some people find it threatening and it's very isolating for her at times. It's, it's really interesting and in listening to you, just the kind of... The idea of initially I would have just been viewing forgiveness as almost this virtue to be aiming for irrespective of situation, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of remarkable to see that mother in that circumstance going down that route and then kind of thinking, well, wow, if if that could if forgiveness could be experienced in such a circumstance, 
then what are we what are the rest of us holding on to maybe even mm. in some more even trivial experiences mm. but you can really then understand the perspective of other people too if they were like well you know going back to the shootings you mentioned in charleston like where you're like okay but if you forgive this are we giving permission for perpetrators to do it again in in terms of mm. just when you think of some of these stories like is there is there even in the early stages of them because i know you've obviously there's been so many at this point but even in the in the early stages of it was there one that really just kind of rocked your world of perception in terms of forgiveness or that just really took you by surprise you mean something ex out there do or you, you just something? that had a that had a profound kind of effect on you. It doesn't even need to be the most sensational one, if you get me. But just was there was there one moment in the early stages of this project that you recall that just kind of touched you, and you were like, "Whoa, this is this is challenging my this is challenging almost how I perceive life." If you get me. Well, you know, you asked that question. I don't know if it's quite about forgiveness, but it was an interesting experience for me. Was in the early first year of collecting stories. And it was a mother whose whose son had died, unfortunately, but it wasn't an act of harm by the hospital, had died on the operating table in a routine um, examination, or operation rather. But then his parts of his cells um, were taken for, for experimentation. Parts of his body was taken for without her permission. It was a huge scandal here. Alder Hay Children's Hospital. It was a big, big scandal. So I went to interview her about it because she had forgiven the doctors who'd done it because she felt it was a way of moving forward so that they could understand and to go into litigation, she felt, would be very counterproductive and just exacerbate the cycle of harm. So as I was talking to her, um, I just found myself uncontrollably... (laughs) sort of weeping. And I'm a journalist, you know, I've heard many, many stories before. And I just, I was terribly embarrassed. And, you know, obviously I kept it together and kept asking questions and writing, but I just was very, very overwhelmed by the story. And I thought after, I had a son at the time of roughly the same age, maybe that was it. Empathy is a very strange thing. Yeah. You always empathize with terrible things that happen to children on the news, if they're the same age as your children, more than if they're a totally different age. You know, it's just like, because you can then immediately understand what it means to hold a five-year-old child in your arms or something. So maybe it was partly that. Maybe it was partly to do my own brother died of a hereditary disease when he was 17. Maybe that was triggered. But the interesting thing for me was that I apologised to her afterwards. I said, sorry, I'm so sorry I got so upset while you were talking. Because uh, I did think it's her grief, it's not mine. You know, I'm a professional person coming to interview her. But she was so gracious. She just said, actually, you know, I've spoken to a lot, she's getting the campaign going, so she'd spoken to a lot of journalists. I said, none of them show any emotion. They just oh, sit there, they take notes. They leave. She said, it was so refreshing that you were there with me in the pain. So, you know, that was, that wasn't really a story. It wasn't the forgiveness that triggered me there, but it was pain. 
But I think also, you know, that my experience as a, as a child being the sibling of essentially a brother who was always going to die, and I knew that, made me quite comfortable, or should we say familiar, around familial stories in a way of, of loss and pain and death. Maybe took me towards forgiveness. The work I did, yeah, in forgiveness. That's, um, I just when you're saying that, it gets me a little misty. I'd even just picture or imagining you, you two talking and this woman uh, being interviewed by so many people and so little kind of a like it's seeming quite a clinical process of asking questions and getting answers back mm. and it just seems like such a a gloriously kind of connecting moment where she sees that whatever she has said has touched something in you which maybe has hit a similar a place in you and it's almost like a yeah. not a shared experience and it's I can understand your perspective of I don't want to take away from your space but it's uh I love just the fact that that was the thing that probably she found most comforting out of all the experiences of yeah. all these interviews yeah yeah in in terms of the just even noting that and then thinking of forgiveness in general it it does kind of make me think a little bit of just the you know we mentioned earlier the curiosity and you also mentioned this idea of if I put my this uh, someone you interviewed, if I put myself in this exact same position as this person, if I had the same influences, if I grew up in the same environment, would I do anything differently? And there's a, a, a guy called Ramdas who's passed now, but I re always really enjoyed listening to his uh, his kind of his talks. And I forget who the poem was by that he was quoting this by, but it was almost a sense of, you know, I am. I'm the child who has been uh, raped by um, these pirates, essentially. And then he goes, and I'm also, I'm, I'm, so I'm also this quivering child, but I'm also the pirate that raped her. Yeah. You know, just something like that, where it's almost this huge encompassing kind of idea that, wow, I could be any point in any given time. Um, it's almost the, this kind of deep understanding that we're all capable of something that you may not think we're capable of almost. When you think of, and I, once again, I don't want to signal uh, forgiveness as the virtue we should be aiming for, but when you think, I know you've touched on people not, uh, or, you know, needing forgiveness for themselves, for healing, but without kind of uh, making a forgiveness a virtue, what would you kind of see as the things that allowed people to forgive that maybe have surprised you or that maybe that you've mm -hmm. taken on in, in, in your life as, a, as an account, as a result of all these, uh, these stories that you've heard? Yeah, I mean, I think it all comes down to curiosity and this ability to widen your lens, um, to have perspective change. So whether that's learned or experience can suddenly, a bit like Vigan Murray, the mother of the, her son who killed in the Manchester Arena bombings. Some, that image that she saw in the paper of the imam and his group shifted something in her brain, in her heart, actually. And it gave her curiosity, it gave her perspective change, 
And I think forgiving people are flexible thinkers and open-hearted, but they're not always that way. Sometimes pain can be the thing that prizes that heart open. One of my storytellers I worked with said a broken heart is an open heart. Yeah. That's how, you know, and it's about finding the gift in the wound. And, you know, from that perspective change, from that curiosity leads to understanding, leads to empathy building, and leads to this ability to, um, to walk in the shoes of the other, really. And that's where, that's where forgiveness lies, on that territory, um, whatever forgiveness is, you know. And again, it it's, means multiple things to, to people. But I always see it starting with curiosity. I think when we've got closed minds, blinkered views, black and white thinking, you know, when we're not open to the other person's story, we don't actually get very far. And it's a safer place in many respects. Um, we know what we think. This is how it is. If you cross that line, that's it. You know, a lot of people do that. Forgiveness is softer somehow, more open, more open to possibility. And it's a sort of creative response. That's, uh, that's beautifully framed. I think there's a sense of, you know, one of the reasons why we're trying to n not forgive and at times I think is just so that we can hold on to our worldview and that we don't have to rattle our own cage a little bit at times in, in yeah. potentially perceiving something else. Mm -hmm. But this, uh, this expression, the pain prizes the heart open, that's, mm -hmm. oh, that's gorgeous. Like in, in terms of like, almost like hope and darkness too, yeah. that, that idea. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And some of the, I've, I've only mentioned some of the extreme stories that we've shared and the people that I've worked with, but that some of my favorite stories actually are about family fallouts and things like that and how people can come back together and then come back together again. But I mean, I do recognize that sometimes that's not right for an individual and a separation is important. But the two stories that I really love, one is about um, a man, young father whose wife leads him and for another man and how he does everything he can to make that man's life terrible, his rival and rings him up and threatens this, that and the other, never actually is physically violent, but threatens violence a long time until things change and he decides to meet him and see what this guy's like prepared to hate him and then describes the guy coming into a cafe in copenhagen and he's thinking oh he looks really gentle like a big sort of big gentle giant type figure which he immediately warms to anyway long story short they become very very close friends <laughs> and years later the um the man, his rival, dies of cancer and he's actually at the hospice and he's just so moving. He describes how he said, the day he went out of my life, I cried the way he, I did the day he came into my life. Uh, so, you know, those stories, I think, in some ways, you know, move me more than the big stories of murder and, and terrorism and violent abuse. That's a staggering line. I, I, the day he left, I cried just like the day he came into my life. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Like that's, yeah. there's something so, 
I think it's so beautifully perfect about it. Or like there's there is, and I think what's also lovely is that he took that step. He was curious. Who is this guy? I'm going to meet yeah. him. I mean, how many people do that in that sort of circumstance? Very unusual. There's another um, young man called Matthew Sherker, who's an American, whose parents, whose father actually put him through conversion therapy when he was 16, you know, to stop being gay. He'd come out as gay. His father said it was... Uh, they were secular Jews, but the tradition of Judaism was important to the father, and he wasn't having any of it, but he loved his son, put him through conversion therapy, which did his head in, as you can imagine. It was so terrible. He describes how he's in the family house. He's 16, 17. The therapy says you're not allowed to talk to your mother and sisters. So for two years, he basically had to come down to breakfast and not talk to his mother and sisters. I mean, it was just like the most brutal, cruel um, former therapy. Anyway, by 18, he's rejected all that. He's come out. It takes him a long time to feel comfortable in his body. Won't see his father, understandably. His father moves to Israel. Five years later, he decides, I have to see him again. I, I need to mend this terrible rift. I don't know what's going to happen. He gets a plane, goes to Israel. And again, he describes. So they have a long conversation his father again says, you must change, you've got to change, go back to therapy, etc., etc." And this time he responds differently. He doesn't respond with anger. He stops, he looks at his father in the eyes and he said, you have to understand, I'm happy, I'm leading my best life. This is how I'm going to be. I'm okay, he says. And with that, his father shifts and changes. And the reason his father shifts and changes and accepts is because his son has understood that his father is only doing this because his father loves him. He wasn't doing it to be cruel, vindictive. He was trying to make help his son lead the happiest life that he could. And he thought this was the right way of doing it. And so in a way, Matthew had to come forward strong, say, no, I'm happy. You know, it's all right, Dad. I'm happy and I'm okay and I'm going to lead my best life and hugged him. And, you know, he describes it much better than I am, actually. <laughs> Matthew Sherko, if anyone's interested on the website, it's a very, very beautiful story, I think. Yeah, I'll put uh, a, again, I'll put taking that action, it. going to Israel, seeing his father, confronting it in a way, but with compassion this time, not anger. I think there's a, a beautiful space that we can reside in with ourselves sometimes when we can hear the same story that actually involves us personally, but we almost take, like we have our boundaries, we're firm in ourselves, but we almost take ourselves out of the story briefly just to just to see it from the other person's perspective. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And because what you just described there, the idea that despite what he went through, that he could actually mm. open the space to see that oh. his father in some way was doing this out of love. Yeah. Absolutely it's, it's, right. it's a remarkable perspective to yeah. be able to to even get a glimmer of, yeah. let alone yeah. to act yeah. from. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And he came to that perspective, five years of intense therapy and various things yeah. that allowed, you helped him, supported him to have this new perspective. Yeah. From, from, your, from your experience, and I, I know you're saying uh you know, you had this experience where you, uh, you you find yourself crying in an interview mm -hmm. and for the various ways in which you could empathize with this this lady's experience. 
like even as you're talking i'm almost thinking of people who are maybe i just better maybe i'd like to reach out to them or something and just drop them a text and say hello again and say that that was a bit weird how that that played out (laughs) do you know what i mean i'm not even talking about in huge fractures but when you've gone through this experience with this project do you find yourself I don't know, like, has it affected your life quite greatly? And you don't have to share something extremely personal, if you know what I mean, but do you find yourself kind of, like, is it almost confronting the, like, for bringing you closer to areas in your life where maybe you would like to revisit or approach? Yeah, um, I think I've always hated, you know, part of my nature is not to like conflict with friends or family. So I've always avoided that my best I can. So I'm not someone who's had a great many conflicts in my life. Nevertheless, I do write about it. I did sort of think about it, and I decided to write about it in my book a bit, about two instances where um, I offended two people in ways that there were two totally separate things, but the basic thing is that I offended these people, and they were very upset by what I said. Well, what I said and did. With one, I had no idea what it was. With the other one, I knew exactly what it was. And the, really what I'm writing about is, you know, apology, actually, because it's quite, it was quite interesting to me in those two circumstances where the apology made no difference at all. Right. With one, I've never spoken to them again. I'm out of it. They never want to see me again. And I've accepted that. That's, you know, I felt quite angry, actually, at one point about that. But I then accepted that that's what happens sometimes. That's life. You know, friendships ebb and flow. He had every right never to see me again. And, you know, in a way, I've forgiven him for being so hostile to me and not telling me what I'd done what's wrong. Well, I don't think he's forgiven me, mind you. I don't think yeah. so. So I've, I thought a lot about, you know, forgiveness in those, in those um, examples. The other one was with a good friend. Who, uh, who asked for advice when her husband left her and actually said, should I forgive? Can I forgive him? It was a rhetorical question. Right. I shouldn't have answered. She was in pain. I should have just listened. But she lives on the side of the world, banged off a little email. Well, maybe in time you can forgive him. It landed very, very badly. She's very upset with me. So that was like two year cooling off period. But now we're like really close and closer than ever. And, you know, I just, it taught me stuff about, I suppose, forgiveness and apology, those two. I'm not sure I would have responded any differently if I'd never done this work, um, to be frank. I don't know how much it's changed me. I do know, though, that um, I do think about, I do try and resolve things and leave yeah. them feeling I need to feel I hate feeling you know that feeling in your heart when it's tight yeah and something there's an issue with someone can't but you can walk away and at any time you'll forget it but if they're in your life I have to resolve it I can't just let it go on I think it's my nature though Mark I think you know I just think that's that's me. And that that tightness in your heart that that resonates so deeply with me as well. Like I think, and sometimes we can even try to, we can think that the time in between a scenario 
may may even equate to forgiveness or even may even equate to a time without it being mentioned may equate to forgiveness but there is something really i think really important in keeping a and trying to keep a bit of maybe a lightness to our life or openness to yeah. our heart yeah to to go to those places because i love I, i've had experiences where sometimes conflict we almost have as this dirty word but sometimes it's just necessary we need because we're all imperfect humans floating mm. around trying to figure out what the hell this is mm. so we're always and even if we do something that we have no regrets about we can still hurt somebody or even if we apologize someone may mm. still not come back to the table so I, I i don't know i think there's something really nice about just can you can we willingly go there and not just try to avoid these mm. things because sometimes it can be over such silly things as well like we're <laughs> You know, if you do just reach out again, because I've had some experiences where we could, someone could reach out after six or seven years and with the space, there could almost be a laughter of like, God, can you believe how stubborn I am? And, and I'll still be stubborn, <laughs> you know, going back to your point of, you know, maybe I don't always just change with certain things, but just, I don't know, it, I don't think we get away with these things. I think they almost become things that we kind of carry over our shoulder as we move through life if, if we don't at least attempt to address it. And I think there's peace yeah. in even apologizing and never hearing back from somebody. Do you get me? I do. I do. I also am reminded of this, this man who was given a terminal diagnosis, but then had a kind of reprieve of, of several years. He did eventually die, but he had worked with dying people. So when it sort of happened to him and he got this diagnosis, he thought he would follow the advice that he always gave them. And that is to make repair with those that he's relationships have been severed with or who he previously harmed or to go and ask for forgiveness, basically, which he then did. What was interesting, he wrote, he wrote a book then called, I think, Dying and Not Dying or something like that. But what he found was that these people could not remember what he was talking about. And, um, you know, all of them, not one of them could remember or if they could remember, it was like, what are you talking about? You know, right. So it was like it had been a thing for him. But yeah. so often for the other person, they don't have the same relationship with what happened. That can happen the other way around as well, of course. I have this lovely feeling of being a... Uh comfortably and uncomfortably confused <laughs> yes. by the by the ambiguity of of life almost in this in this conversation and yeah. it's it's really i don't know it's it's really kind of eye-opening in the sense of just not just even the complexity of life but just the you know, the, the lack of more the absence of certainty as to right and wrong in certain situations. Like, yeah. you know, you mentioned earlier this idea that it almost, yes, it takes curiosity, but it also takes almost like there's a creativity almost to, to forgiveness. And it does almost seem to be this very creative process, like it, almost like you don't know what's going to come out of your pen when That's you start right. writing something. Or That's right. You don't know what's going to unfold in a conversation yeah. as as it unfolds, mm -hmm. and there's something very kind of enlivening about even just mm. contemplating this. Yeah, it's dynamic. Yeah. And I know you said that you 
you kind of you came to this project and then you, you had no plan for it it's it spawned into this this uh you know this charity this exhibition these this book this this things that you write about all these podcasts and these interviews that you do is there something that like do you feel that you're not that you're ever done with forgiveness but is there other things that are kind of like taking your attention now as you as you move through this project yeah i think so i mean i've handed over the reins of the running it you know directorship to someone else so i'm definitely less involved in that work than i was um even though last year i did a bbc series um i did podcasts i wrote a book i sort of feel maybe is that it i'm not sure about that but i have got i find at this stage of life um i do have two other big sort of interests one is around there's an organization here called dignity and dying which is about assisted suicide but helping people die when they want to it occurred to me um that we are pushed this idea that we have choice all our lives you know whether we do or not it's a whole different thing it depends what country you live in as well but autonomy is sort of this big thing and choice and responsibility and then suddenly at death you can't choose when you die when you die hmm. you know and how you die um and i thought there are certain things i'm very very clear i do not want to live beyond certain to do with certain you know when i lose capacity in certain areas i'm very clear i don't want to live then you know I'll probably have to and I'm looking into it how you do it I don't know quite probably have to spend a lot of money and go to Switzerland to dignitas so I do some campaigning around dignity and dying which is this organization which isn't by the way should make this clear that's not their priority their priority is literally to allow people who have a terminal illness here in the UK to um who are dying anyway you know to bring that forward by whether it's days or months to give the choice to the dying person um if i could i'd go much further um in fact this is a you know it's someone i think it was ian mcewen the writer it might not have been him it was a writer anyway it was a sort of weird thought and it was a very provocative thought that you know there would be little booths on the end of every high street and after the age of whatever it was 70 you could if you wanted just pop in there and say i've had enough thank you you know of course that will never happen and there's a sort of dis- horrible dystopia of course but for me me personally i love that idea absolutely love it so what why get riled riled by this debate is that people who don't agree with me um speak for me hmm. and i'm not speaking for them i totally respect that most people wouldn't want to do that and i totally understand that if any thought sort of assisted suicide you need very very good safeguards you know absolutely firm safeguards to make sure that it's not abused in any way but the fact that my choices in this are just completely dismissed i get very frustrated mark <laughs> that's one of my campaigning arms 
There's a, that is a very provocative thought, isn't it? <laughs> I almost, uh, because, you know, I, I, until we go, what exists on any other sides, you know, we'll, we'll have an experience of maybe nothing, maybe, you know, whatever your, whatever anyone's disposition is there. But I almost had this image in my head of someone walking into a booth and teleporting <laughs> to somewhere else. Like, you, you know, yeah. And it's, uh, I don't know. That is, um, I, I also think it's fascinating. The, I think the the fear that people have around letting go of life mm. or other mm. people having different perspectives on their uh, idea of letting go of life in, in whatever way you want to frame that, but almost like that there's this, I think there's almost this kind of misery we have in, you know, when somebody says they, somebody died or oh, how old were they? 80 yeah. or 90. Oh, oh, good. Oh, good innings or, you know, yeah, something yeah, yeah, trite yeah. like this when we have no idea if they had a, like a good life, a miserable life, mm-hmm. whether they loved, like they, they wanted to be there, whether they didn't want to be there. And it's all about duration. And I don't know. I, I think there's some kind of, sure. when you say that, it just makes me kind of think of, yeah, this idea, it's often people when they're holding on so tightly to life that their life is so constricted that they're not even living, that even the idea that somebody may be content or be at peace yeah. with leaving yeah. is so yeah. confronting. Yeah. Well, part of the reason I think this, Mark, I'm at a different stage of life to you. Um, my contemporaries are all looking after or have looked after or experienced very incapacitated parents and elders. Yeah many of whom have had Alzheimer's or dementia and everything. And we don't want it for ourselves. We do not want it. It's a constant conversation. <laughs> Gets quite wearing, yeah. actually. It really does. Constant. Um, how are we going to prevent this? You know, how can we stop this happening? Now, our parents didn't have the experience we're having because mainly their parents died earlier. Um, and it was the war years and all that. So... I think it's just very interesting. I've been, you know, what will happen in the future? I don't know, you know, whether you're my age or will, will, will it be easier to choose when we go without it being a terrible stigma or seen as murder or, you know. You know, from, and look, I, I have no idea what I'll think in, in the future, if you know what I mean, I'll, I'll have to mm. go through the experience myself. Um, mm. Exactly. It, it's, uh, I, I do think though, just as my own kind of disposition is like, if somebody is not hurting me, <laughs> let somebody decide for themselves. Mm. I, I think there's something exactly. around the idea though, of just prolonging life for the sake of it when it's so medically assisted as well that I, I find that. Yeah. Where is exactly. the choice? You know, where where is the choice in that in that scenario? And 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 to me, the almost the sterilization of death in a way it, it doesn't seem to be very. The word dignity doesn't really come up uh, very often. It doesn't. Like I've, it's life at all cost. Just keep the life going. You're absolutely right. Keep, give the yeah. antibiotics. You know, okay, that person can't move, can't eat, can't. You know, needs looking after has to be sat up in bed, taken to the toilet, but keep them alive at all costs. That's how the medical profession see it. And 
yeah, I find it deeply alarming. Yeah, I've um, I've interviewed uh, a few different death doulas on this podcast, mm. and and that to me is I, there's something really interesting to me about that space. Even if you could enter into that, even if we could enter into more um, nuanced discussions mm. around death, or even if we could just if we could just bring it up more frequently in our in our lives, I, I think there's a by not avoiding it, there's there's something else that comes up in its space. Mm. If you mm. get me, just, just I'm I'm conscious of mm. of time mm. here. And, yes, and I've I you know I usually you know just usually I guess at the end of these just ask the question of what is a good life. I don't want to just crowbar it in too quickly. No, no, it's a detour it from what we've talked, be, but it, it kind of dovetails into what we're discussing actually. anyway. Yeah. So just just for yourself, what what, a, what is a good life for you? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because I think it would change throughout one's life. That you know how you respond to that question. So I think for me now, in my sixties, you know, part of me would have wanted to answer a good life is to get away from it all, because I feel sort of more and more impotent, and the politics make me more and more despairing. I think like go find someone by the sea and swim in cold water and be in nature. I've lived in a city all my life. You know, a part of me is that, but I also know that a good life for me is also um, around organising and campaigning and writing and trying to change something. So I don't really like the term change activist. It sounds really worthy, doesn't it? But I do think in my heart I am a sort of change activist and I have so dignity of dying is one of my things. And also clean air living in London, you can't help but start to think about what you're breathing. So I do quite a lot locally around clean air and traffic management, <laughs> um, you know, just as a volunteer and, and cycling. I'm a big sort of cycler and encourage people who aren't cycling to cycle. So for me, a good life, I think, is trying to make, trying to change the world, you know, in small local ways. Yeah. That's uh I think those are beautiful sentiments and look Marina this this whole conversation is going to leave me with the <laughs> it's one of the the few that had me contemplating many of my things even during the conversation as well so look I'm I'm really yeah. grateful for your time it was it was an absolute joy to speak with you and yeah I, I look forward to to following what your your campaigns with in terms of dignity and and in death and what they bring as well. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Mark. Cheers. It was, it was a great pleasure for me. So thank you very much.